This morning we're doing something we very rarely do. We're joining together with thousands of other churches across the world to highlight the work of one particular Christian group called the International Justice Mission because we believe IJM brings an effective biblically-based approach and strategy to the many issues of justice that afflict our world, particularly issues of human trafficking and forced labor. The last time we did something like this was for World Vision when we were the first church in the Northeast to host their AIDS experience and thousands of people from our area went through an interactive display that was set up in our parking lot. The next stop for the World AIDS experience was Times Square, but, but we had it first. So I want to encourage you to take a serious look at the materials that are in your bulletin today and prayerfully consider if God might be calling you to get involved in supporting IJM in their mission. I think churches like ours are often reluctant to tackle issues related to justice because, because that word justice has become a political football. And to a large degree, the word justice has been drained of much of its original meaning. In our day, you know, everything has become a justice issue. Because we live in a culture and a time when folks, for the most part, do not believe in absolute truth, people are therefore sort of free to define the word justice any way they want. So basically, anytime somebody doesn't get what they want or what they think they deserve, or if they feel slighted in any way, boom, it becomes a justice issue for them to try and get what they think they deserve. And the myriad of social justice warriors out there have turned the pursuit of justice really into an industry, almost like slip and fall lawyers who can't wait for something that, that smells like a justice issue to happen because there's money to be made, there's careers to be, to be enhanced, there's egos to be inflated. And unfortunately, that just diminishes the real issues of justice that we all should be concerned about. The real issues get lost all lumped together, like the boy who called wolf. If everything becomes a justice issue, then legitimate issues of justice may unfortunately get dismissed in the minds of many Christians, myself included, who look at all the ranting for justice, sometimes with suspicion. But that's what I like about IJM, because I believe they're a trustworthy group who sincerely seek after God's sense of justice in the world. And I hope you will support their work. If we want to discover or rediscover the biblical call to justice and to justice-related issues, the book of Amos is the place to go. Frankly, Amos is the very first justice warrior, and his words to ancient Israel should ring in our ears today if we're sincere about being followers of Jesus. Our message series for this fall is called God Gives Hope, Walking in Justice, Mercy, and Humility. And we're working our way through the section of the Old Testament called the Minor Prophets. Minor not because they're not important, but because these books are shorter than the famous prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. And so today we're going to see the hope of God through the eyes of the prophet Amos. Now, every negative stereotype you might have about crazy street preachers, you know, like the ones that you might see in Times Square or some other city, the ones with, you know, a megaphone strapped to their body, carrying signs, pronouncing doom and gloom with a Bible the size of a suitcase, the kind that when you see them, you intentionally cross the street just to avoid their tirade. That's pretty much what Amos was like. He was a wild man. He was a street preacher. He was very unpopular. He was just such a nuisance. 
Amos was actually one of the first of the string of prophets God sent to warn ancient Israel that the nation was veering way off course and needed to get back on track. Trouble was, at the time of Amos, everything was going great in Israel. Yes, there had been a civil war that had split the nation in two, and so Israel was now the northern half, Judah the southern. They had been at war for over a hundred years, but things had settled down. The, uh, there was about, the time period was about 760 B.C., and the two nations sort of had a peace accord. The economy of Israel was growing. Eco- economic prosperity basically lulled people into a sense of self-satisfaction. Oh, they kept up with their worship rituals, and they went through the motions of their faith in Yahweh. They could, they could check the box, you know, religion, check. But God was a total afterthought. Their hearts and lives were focused on material things. And so their two highest values were personal peace and personal prosperity. Personal peace and personal prosperity. As long as I've got mine, I'm happy. Just leave me alone. Does that sound familiar? As long as I've got mine, just leave me alone. So the people of ancient Israel didn't want to hear the, about the un- ugly underbelly of that prosperity. They, they didn't want to hear about how their prosperity was based on the oppression of others, how their wealth was built on the backs of the poor, how they were grossly underpaying their workers with basically slaves' wages that, that guaranteed that the workers would, would stay in perpetual poverty and never get out. They didn't want to hear about how they fixed prices, how they rigged the system to their own advantage, like, like this passage from Amos chapter 8, starting with verse 4. Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain again, and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat, skimping on the measure, boosting the price, cheating with dishonest scales. I like the way King James actually says that more literally. It says, let us make the ephah small and the shekel great. In other words, they were cheating on both sides of the equation, making people pay more for less. So Amos goes on, verse 6. Buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Selling even the sweepings with the wheat. You see, Amos is shining a spotlight on their economic abuses. Even the way people were being sold into slavery. People were forced to become indentured servants, sold for the price of a pair of sandals to pay off their debts. Debts accumulated because the wealthy people of Israel had rigged the system for their own benefit and they literally couldn't care less about the plight of the little people. Couldn't care less. Well, God did care. God did care about the people who were being cheated and mistreated. And he sent Amos to try and set things right. Now, first, Amos did kind of a smart thing. If you can think of a map of the Middle East with Israel right in the center, if you tracked Amos' movements with a GPS, you see that he starts off by going to all the outer boundaries of Israel in various directions, delivering a message to all the neighboring nations first. In chapter 1, he begins first with Damascus. That's way up in the northeast section above Israel in, in Syria. And he delivers a message to Damascus saying how God has judged them for their cruelty towards the people who lived in Gilead. Gilead was a portion of Israel that the Syrians had captured and and occupied. And the Syrians just kind of beat up on the people of Gilead for any and every reason or for no reason at all. And Amos says that God is going to judge the Syrians for that. 
Then Amos goes way down to the west coast to Gaza, which is the land of the Philistines. And again, Amos says, God's going to judge this land. Why? Because the people have participated in the act of slave trade. Verse 6 of chapter 1. For three sins of Gaza, even four, I will not relent because you took captive hold communities and sold them to Edom. Amos was one of the first prophets to call out the sin of human trafficking and to call slavery wrong. Now, this should have been a no-brainer for the Israelites because their ancestors had once been slaves in Egypt and God, through Moses, had delivered them from that slavery. So anything about the slave trade should have been anathema to them. They of all people should know that this human trafficking was offensive to the Lord. Then Amos moves up uh, the coast to the land of Tyre on the northwest side of Israel. Here he points out how God had judged this country also because of human trafficking and because they just perpetually broke their agreements and contracts. They were a people who could not be trusted to keep their word, to keep their promises, and that kind of falsehood is really offensive to God. Then Amos moves down to the far south of Israel, to the land of Edom, the ancient country of Esau. And here he points out how God's judgment had fallen on that nation because of their love of violence, just the unchecked anger that simmered in their hearts. Then Amos moves back up the east side of Israel to the land of Ammon, which is now the country of Jordan. History tells us that Ammon had conducted a genocide against another country because of its greed for more land. And Amos said, God is going to hold them accountable for that evil. And then south to Moab. God judged Moab because it committed sacrilege against Israel's ancient tombs. Sort of like how in the, the last five years, the terrorist group ISIS has destroyed so many churches and religious sites in Iraq and Syria. And then finally, Amos comes to the southern kingdom, to Judah itself, Israel's arch enemy. And says in chapter 2, verse 4, this is what the Lord says, for three sins of Judah, even four, I will not relent, because they've rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees, because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. I will send fire on Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. Now Judah's sin gets to the heart of the matter, rejecting God and outright turning their backs on God's commands and their covenant. They who were God's chosen ones thumbed their nose at the Almighty. This was more offensive to God than all the other things combined. And all the while, the people of Israel are cheering Amos on. Yeah, way to go, Amos. Way to stick it to those guys. As you read through the, through the first few chapters of Amos, you can imagine the people of Israel, they're cheering him on. They were untroubled by his prophecies as long as Amos was talking about the other nations. Their attitude was more or less, you know, go for it. They're finally going to get what's coming to them. But in the rest of the book, Amos shines the spotlight on Israel and says, you're worse than all of them combined. If you think they're going to get what's coming to them, what do you think God is going to do with you? You know, we are all so good at pointing out the sins of others. We see other people's problems, weak spots so clearly, their failings, their mistakes, their defects, their flaws, and yet we are often so blind to our own junk. It's just easier to judge others than to actually let God's word be a mirror to our hearts, to our lives, 
to have to look at, at where we fall short, where we sin by commissioning and actively go against God's goodness, or where we sin by omission and simply ignore what God clearly wants us to do. We're so blind to ourselves, like the Bible says in the New Testament book of James, chapter 1, starting with verse 22. James writes, Do not deceive yourselves by just listening to his word. Do what it says. If you listen to the word but do not put it into practice, you're like people who look in a mirror, see themselves as they are. They take a good look at themselves and then they go away and at once forget what they look like. But if you look closely into the perfect law that sets people free and keep on paying attention to it and do not simply listen and then forget it, but put it into practice, you will be blessed by God in what you do. Well, the people of Israel, they didn't want to look at themselves. They didn't want to hear anything about their own sin and corruption. Didn't like that one bit. When Amos zeroed in on his own people, they got angry. At this point, Amos is camped out on the steps of the temple in Bethel. And he is going at it 24-7. He's making a public spectacle, calling out all the sins of Israel, all their injustices and abuses. It would be like someone pitching a tent on the steps of St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City and just loudly protesting nonstop against the abusers in the Roman Catholic priesthood and the decades-long cover-up by the church hierarchy that shielded the pedophile priests from prosecution. Amos was a total pest. Amos made such a noisy public nuisance of himself that finally the high priest of Bethel, Amaziah, comes out and tells Amos just to go away. Amos 7.12 says, Then Amaziah said to Amos, Get out, you seer. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and do your prophesying there. Don't prophesy anymore at Bethel because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. He's basically saying, Go away. Preach someone else. And of course, that's what Amaziah would say because he's the priest of Bethel and it was his job to keep Israel in line with God's will. So obviously, he hasn't been doing his job. In fact, he's part of the problem. He is corrupt to the core. He's in league with the corrupt king. And when the people who have the power are corrupted, when they misuse their power, instead of protecting the people, they actually contribute to the abuse when they protect the abusers, as Amaziah did in protecting King Jeroboam from Amos's onslaught, that's when the system itself becomes sick and diseased and in danger of collapse. God is sending them a wake-up call for the way they have treated the poor, for the way they have corrupted the system, for the way they have wandered from God. Through Amos, God is sending them a wake-up call, like he often does with us. Something to shake us up, to rouse us from our complacent spirit, to awaken us from our false sense of self-sufficiency. For anyone living with a sense of prosperity who has any level of material wealth, as we all do here in our corner of the U.S., Amos should be a very uncomfortable book to read. It should be. It should be a mirror where we look at ourselves and get honest about maybe how much we participate in systems and practices that actually harm the poor. Whether that's dollar-a-day laborers in Thailand making your expensive designer handbags or textile workers locked in sweatshops in the Philippines for 12 hours a day making your t-shirts or the 70 million children worldwide who are denied an education because they're forced to work as laborers in factories and farms and mines and brickyards and the like. 
This isn't a political issue or even a social justice issue. It is a gospel issue because God cares about how the poor are treated. Amos is often the book of choice for the modern progressive social justice warriors because he makes demands that people should be treated rightly, that the poor and the powerless need to be protected, that issues like fair pay and honest business practices, human trafficking, corporate greed, physical safety, personal dignity. For Amos, these are things that aren't just social or political. They aren't just trendy fads that people gravitate to and then move on from to chase the next justice fad. These are gospel issues because they have to do with the character of God. Justice matters because God is just. That's a quality of his eternal character. Justice is a part of who God is. He's the creator of justice. It runs through him and overflows out of him. He created his world, formed human beings in his image so that we all carry that sense of justice within us. A part part of each and every one of us carries the image of God. God has imprinted his own self into each one of us, so what happens to each of us matters to him. And so when any of those who are created in his image are mistreated, abused, or treated in such a way as to lose their dignity, that matters to God. If we pray for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven, as we do in the Lord's Prayer, then living out his kingdom values here on earth means we have to embrace justice as a gospel concern. But the solution Amos offers is often missed by the modern social justice warriors. We have to be careful about only reading half of Amos and not the whole thing. We should be careful about using the Bible only as a means to an end because when we do that, we're actually as guilty as the Israelites were in their misuse of worship. The answer that Amos gives is not, you know, stop doing bad things and be nice to each other. That's not the solution for Israel to get back on track. The exploitation, the economic abuse, the indifference to suffering, those are just symptoms of the bigger problem. And for Amos, unless you address that bigger problem, it's like giving, like giving a cough drop to someone who has lung cancer. You're not addressing what really matters. You're not dealing with the root issue. Three times in chapter 5, God says to Moses, seek me and live. Seek me and live. Seek the Lord and live. What's the answer for a troubled nation or a troubled life? It's not get your act together, try harder. It's not clean up your life, fly straight. The answer for Amos is that people need to turn back to God. And the word he uses and all the prophets use for this turning, it's the Hebrew word shuv. It's the same word that gets translated as the verb repent. But the emphasis is not on changing your behavior and trying to be a nice person. The emphasis is about turning to face God, turning to face God, to engage in a relationship with the Lord, reestablishing a right relationship with the Lord is what Amos is after first and foremost. Behaving justly, treating people with dignity, caring for the exploited, those are all consequences of this turning to God. Those other things will fall into place if a person is truly right with the Lord. It's phony worship that leads to injustice. Insincere worship that allows people to pretend to be religious while engaging in evil things. Just actions flow from the heart of a person who is sincerely connected to God because justice is in God's heart. That's what Amos is talking about in that most famous off-quoted passage from chapter 5, verse 21, where God says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. 
Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-ending stream. You see, God's sense of justice and rightness flow from a heart that's properly turned towards him. Just actions are evidence of a heart turned toward God and responsive to his will. Sincere believers must care about issues of justice and righteousness because that's what we find in the very heart of God. There are people who need us to be engaged in the issues of justice in our day. I can't give you a list of where we should or should not take our stand on the myriad of social issues that bubble up in our nation or the best solutions but all Christians should be able to agree that God cares for the poor and the oppressed. And there might be legitimate disagreement about what's the best method or strategy to use to help the poor. But at least we can agree on one issue where we should have crystal clear vision. The plight of human trafficking, where predators take advantage of people in desperate situations, dupe them into sex trafficking or to forced labor, destroy their dignity just to make a profit. We cannot tackle every problem in the world, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't do what we can do. And supporting the work of the International Justice Mission is a great first step, a great way for us to respond to the challenge of Amos to let justice roll on. So I hope you'll fill out your card and give it to the people that you'll see as you leave today or send it to the church office this week. We'll process it for you. Let's do something concrete and real. Let's turn our hearts towards God. Let's see the justice that is in God's heart and then do something real about it. James 1.22. Don't just listen to God's word. Do what it says. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this very challenging book of Amos. It's a hard book to read through because he's got a lot to say about what's wrong with this world. But Lord, let us also see the hopeful side where people are called to turn into a new relationship with you. And in that turning, they find life in a new way. They find hearts changed. And your love, your justice, all of your qualities begin to flow through us out into the world around us. May their quality of justice permeate our hearts today. Give us hearts that are willing to respond to you and to follow you. For we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.